Hi everyone, this is Martin Willis and welcome to the Antique Auction Forum for episode number 118 with Terry Covell. Our website is antiqueauctionforum.com and you can contact me at info at antiqueauctionforum.com. You can follow us on Twitter or you can like us on Facebook. Those icons are right on our website. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy today's show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm on the phone with Terry Covell. How are you, Terry? I'm fine, thanks. Good to hear from you. Yes, thank you. Now, I'm talking about Terry Covell of Ralph and Terry Covell and Covell's uh, Price Guides. Now, I have seen these books around growing up in the business. God, I want to say back in the 70s, I first picked up a Covell's look through it. Um, how, uh, how many books have you published? When did you start? Oh, now I'm giving my age away. <laughs> Our first book came out in 1953. It was the Dictionary of Marks, Pottery and Porcelain, and it's kind of funny. It actually literally arrived, the first copy we saw arrived the day our daughter was born. Wow. So we kept saying we were going to call her a Mark, if it was a boy, but <laughs> I got a girl. She lucked out. She didn't have that. At any rate, um, then we were, they said we were experts. You know, you wrote a book, <laughs> you're an expert. And um, the price book came along a couple books later, but the one this year, the 2013 Covells, is the 45th price book. And they're all new every year, so I can count it and hold your breath. This is our 101st book. Oh, wow. So yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. You would do this every year. I can't imagine what an undertaking that is. And the I remember going through your price guides, not always agreeing, to be honest with you, when I was younger um, with the prices, because I was following what things were selling for at auction growing up in the auction business. And there was a, a stretch away from what things were selling in the book, but it did give the layperson an idea of what some things were worth. I think it was a very valuable tool. Can you tell me in the initial beginning how you obtained the prices for these pieces? Well, originally, we, we literally had people reporting to us from all over the country. I had a lot of friends who were antiquers, you know, so I told them write down the prices. But every price we record in any book was an actual asked-for price. Now, we can't guarantee that's what you paid. We know everybody works with that a little bit. But also, there really weren't any antique auctions that were doing much of anything when we did this in the early 50s. They were all local. They didn't have catalogs, except that the far... You've got to remember that the East Coast always had an entirely different, different price structure than Cleveland which is where mm -hmm. I live, and certainly different than California. I mean, they used to, I remember talking to a dealer in Colorado who told me they bought all their antiques in Ohio, <laughs> in retail, and took them out to Colorado and sold them. And that's really what was going on then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was going on right into the uh, 70s and early 80s, uh, pretty heavy duty. My father was actually involved in sending items from this area, mostly oak and Victorian pieces, right to uh, the Denver, Boulder, Colorado area. Yeah, no, that's it. And what we did, uh, they tell us, I've, I've always been surprised at how much they think we changed things. Uh, 
we leveled the market. Things got much closer in price because people realized what the difference was. And, mm-hmm. of course, the auctions were getting more and more important. And today, I think most auctions are, in some cases, retail. I believe that. I see that myself a lot of times. Dealers will come up to me during an auction and say, where is that person going to go with that piece? And, you know, I mean, it kind of hits the top. But, you know, it's variable, that's for sure. And speaking of variable, you just mentioned regions of the country. And when I very first looked at my father's appraisals that he was doing, in the cover page he had a notation that said prices may vary in different regions of the country. And Yes, and we say that in the introduction to all our books, by the way. Oh, you do? And have you always? Yes. Uh-huh. And we've always explained if it's wholesale or retail, and we also uh, used to only, you'll love this, used to only list things up to $5,000. <laughs> now we wouldn't have anything to say if we did that, <laughs> so um, we've raised the price limit. But we occasionally have something like a major sale of mechanical banks or something, and we will put in a price like 35000 for a bank, you know. Mm-hmm. And we explain in the introduction that we, and we actually explain it in the, in the paragraph that introduces banks, that this year we've included some unbelievable ones because we want you to know that the top of the market is really t- way up there. Yes. I think that's pretty much across the board. I'm sure you, know, you realize that. You have your thumb on what's going on in today's world. And do you currently get a lot of your prices through auction results? Uh, yes, but we every word is edited in our book. Um, and, it, and actually, every word is proofread three or four times. And I read every word a couple times. I'm <laughs> Unfortunately, I still have to. Um, we look very carefully for the things that seem to, make, to be impossible. We don't take prices from places like eBay where we don't think the people know what they're selling. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Now, I have uh, right now sitting on my desk here as we're speaking, I have three Covell's books. Um, Let's see. I have the 2008 price list, 2001 price list, and I also have the yellow pages. Um, Oh, my. That's out of print long ago. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, let's see. That is a collector's directory of names, addresses, and telephone and fax numbers and Internet addresses, et cetera, of like um, dealers and things across the country. Isn't that right? Right. Yeah, I have. Yeah, and clubs and anything that might be useful to a collector. Yeah, yeah, and I see Warman's has been around just about as long as Covell's. What's the situation with that? Warman started before we did, um, and he started with a very small. He was a, a printer in Philadelphia, and a smart printer in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. he got. He evidently was printing some price lists for several auction houses or, or galleries. I think most of them were actually shops. And he took a bunch of those and put them together. I remember one was a, a list of prints, um, one was a list of furniture. He put them together and he put in mail order ads in magazines and he sold them. But the trouble was that he put the ads in before he had the book and then it took a long time to fill the mail order ads. And then every bookstore in America was getting heck from their customers because they couldn't buy a Warman's and here were all these ads. So our publisher... We had already done a couple books for them. Our publisher suggested that we write a prize book, and we did it with a computer or with the equivalent of a computer from those days, mm-hmm. which meant we could get it out in print in six months, which was about a year earlier than you could do it by the old ways. Mm-hmm. You and your husband, Ralph, must have had a real passion for antiques in order to take on something of this magnitude. Can you explain how you got started 
I, you know, it, it's kind of funny. Uh, Ralph came from a family where people thought antiques were old things. You, you know, people mm-hmm. who had enough money to buy new things didn't buy old things, which, by the way, was 99% of the American public at that time. I had a mother who collected antique silver and a few things, but that's about the extent of it. But when we were on our honeymoon, we <laughs> we rode our bicycles past an antique shop in Bermuda, and we stopped and... Ralph just fell in love with a bunch of stuff, and we we spent all our honeymoon money on antiques, and I still have <laughs> most of them, by the way. They were very good buys, and uh, it just went from there. When we got back, uh, we moved into an apartment, and we had to have go like this. We had to have accessories like ashtrays. You know, mm-hmm. everybody had to have ashtrays. Oh yeah, yeah, and lamps and things. And it was okay to go to a house sale for that, but heaven forbid that you should buy a piece of furniture or clothes or you know or anything like that it just wasn't done and that once again was true of america in those days so we started there and that's how ralph decided we needed to do our first book which was the dictionary of marks pottery and porcelain Mm -hmm. and that book remained in print until about a year or so ago and it is now available online on our site wow I, i do want to talk to you a lot about what's online and what's changed and all that but first, um, you know, we'll just talk about um, other things. Now, I had a book at one time. Now, I kept this book because it was fun to look at. And the title of the book was How to Turn Your Ugly Antiques into Modern Furniture. Oh, I know. We, we have a couple of those, one from the 30s, one from the 50s. Yeah. I mean, Peter Hunt did all this stuff at some point, around, I think, 60s or 70s. And now, of course, you buy Peter Hunt for a premium. But... Uh, it's it's been they've been massacred for years, and I, yeah. I love the ones where they cut the legs off and they paint them and they say, oh, "Now yeah. you have a wonderful antique table." Yeah, you know, changing. Um, I can't even think of examples, but of course it was you know changing the uh, rope bed into a, a settee. People still actually do that today, and you know actually for the prices that a two hundred and twenty five year old rope bed is selling for, you might as well turn it into a settee. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But we keep track of the newer things, the younger look at antiques. And uh, since I have a, my daughters are my partner now. And um, yesterday somebody came up to me in the office and showed me a picture from one of the magazines where someone had taken vintage suitcases, not good mm-hmm. ones, just old suitcases, cut them in half lengthwise and used them as shelves. Uh. <laughs> Wow. I hadn't seen that one before, so we're still slaughtering anything we can change into something else. <laughs> yeah, you, you talked earlier about back in the 50s when you were on your honeymoon and nobody wanted the old stuff. And, you know, that's almost um, a trend that is happening with young people today, as I'm sure you understand for the most part. Well, I can understand part of it. First of all, silver has to be cleaned. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Interestingly, silver, of course, has a meltdown value, and at least you know you've got that. But you can still sell very good English 18th century, even Sheffield and silver, because there's still a group of people out there, but I don't think there are anybody who is in in his or her 30s or even who lives in this country in a small town, because this is strictly for people who give banquets. You know, and mm-hmm. there still are some around, and everything's international now. So if it's really good, it'll go somewhere. That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's also true that they were for a while there. 
I was giving what I always give an antique as a wedding present. I warn the bride, and then I get something that's non-controversial. <laughs> but um, for a while there, everybody was getting pottery instead of porcelain dishes, and they were getting pewter instead of silver, and mm-hmm. you know. And now they're going back, interestingly enough, into the dishes because you can buy a full set, twelve place settings oh. of some great dishes for two, three hundred bucks now. I mean, they're giving them away. Yeah, even less sometimes. I've seen this. Yeah. I saw the trend. I was in California for nine years, and I saw, I'm back on the East Coast now. But I saw, um, say, sets of Limoges, you know, the rose. Oh, the yeah. Rose. Well, that, of course, was very big for so long, and then it yeah. died. And now, uh, you know, I've seen uh, 12 place settings go for, you know, $100, $150. And it's just like, you know, it was baffling to see the change. And, you know, this uh, this same auction house I worked at had appraisal clinics, and there are weekly appraisal clinics. And the theme that I heard over and over again is my grandchildren don't want anything to do with this, or uh, no one has dinner parties anymore, so we need to sell the, the flatware. Right. You know, yeah. it's it's kind of just like a general uh, change. And well, well, but but I was at an antique show here in this area, in Hudson, Ohio. And it's a well-known one that basically is country, shall we say. And there was one dealer there with piles of what I would call service plates. These mm-hmm. uh, they, were, they weren't the real big ones, but they were they were really dinner plates with very elaborate designs with gold borders and ladies oh, yes. middle and on that. They're and I pretty. Said, can you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, can you really sell those? You know, he said I sold four sets this morning. Wow. So That's... somewhere there are people who are using <laughs> service plates, which I was stunned by because the rest of this particular show, everything was made out of wood. Ah, yeah. A lot of tools and things. I usually think of a service plate as around 11 inches in yeah. diameter. Yeah, well, these, these were 10-inch mm-hmm. plates, but they mm-hmm. were very elaborate. But yeah. I don't think they were eating food off them. Maybe right. they were putting them in a cabinet, but who has a cabinet like that anymore? That, that's true, <laughs> unless it's a built-in. <laughs> but he said it's a big seller everywhere. Wow, that's interesting. But not Limoges. <laughs> Uh-huh. This is a question that people are often asking me, and I wanted to see your take on it. Since you just finished your 2013 book, what would you consider the heavy-duty trends of today? All right. Well, that's easy. First of all, Chinese, although I suspect yeah. it's getting near the end. Yes, um, I've heard and that. And I would like mm-hmm. to later ask me because I want to tell you some stories about that. Secondly, um, the 50s. 50s, 50s, 50s. All the, and I just got... Nordstrom department store catalog in the mail today and they have one section they're calling vintage vibes and in it they've got jewelry that looks like it's old and clothes that look like they're old I mean they really do they're almost exact duplicates so that's that's coming back too and the, you can see in the clothing the 60s and 70s are back and the jewelry that goes with it is back, and the lifestyle is back to a great extent. People, that's when people first started doing buffets and, and having informal parties and didn't want to work too hard cleaning their houses, so they simplified their lives. There's a whole long history of this. I, we've gone through all of this, but essentially after World War II, everything changed. All the modern things came in, and the Scandinavian and the Eames look and whatnot came in. Mm-hmm. And that's what everybody wants because that's the housing stock a lot of people are getting. And because it, it, it's easier to take care of and it, it's modern, you know. Right. I work with an auction company and the owner is James Julia up in Maine. And uh, Oh, I know them. Oh, yes. Very bright, uh, very bright man. And his, 
his saying the other day, I hope he doesn't mind me quoting him, was he believes the uh, bloom is off the rose slightly on the Chinese items. And I wanted to hear your take on that because you said you had a, something to tell me about that. Oh, I'm absolutely sure. And actually, I'm, I'm in a way quoting the last James Yulia sale. Um, there was a big to-do on the Antiques Roadshow on rhinoceros horns. Mm -hmm. Somebody had the rhinoceros horn libation cups, and they, they said his collection was worth something like a million and a half. He had a bunch of them. And he put a couple up for sale who did all right. But they were running basically, the, the auction houses were appraising them at uh, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, and they were selling for a hundred and fifty, two hundred and fifty thousand. dollars $250,000. Everybody was kind of looking at them. Well, I know of one where they bid 150 from a very well-known Chicago auction house, and he didn't pay for it. He came in and he said, well, that's too much money. I don't want to pay. Mm. And they said, well, I mean, you bought it. No, I'm not paying. I'll give you 80000 Wow. And the owner of the piece said, I'll eat it before I'll let somebody do that to an auction house. Mm -hmm. The... Uh, that, then I started looking into it, and this was not happening just once. This was happening all over the place where some of these major, major prices you were seeing uh, never got bought, never got paid for, and you can't exactly sue someone in China to collect. Have you read the Huffington Post article about this? Uh, probably. I've been keeping mm -hmm. very close tabs on it because I know the person who got stuck on the 150000 By the way, they've, so they've now since sold it for 40000 and gotten paid. Well, wow. now there's an issue right now that you cannot currently import uh, rhinoceros horn into China. So that they cannot, they cannot get their pieces. So that whole market is, for American collectors is going to drop drastically. This just, yeah. this is a recent development. Well, yeah, but they've, they've done this on other things, too. There was a story a couple of years ago about a young couple that inherited some vases that sold for millions and millions of dollars, they're still trying to collect. Mm -hmm. They've never been paid. And I just wonder what happened with their estate because they had no money. This was something they inherited. And what does the government think they owe in taxes? <laughs> I don't oh, know what boy. to do with that. Oh. It's a mess. But they've been doing this on a lot of things. And I, I, in a way, think that... Do you remember the days when there was a ring at every auction? Yeah, you mean a pool? Yeah, a pool, right. Yes, uh-huh. And... Mm -hmm. um, I have a feeling there's a little of that going on because the Chinese had buyers who came over for four or five people in China, you know, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And I think they, they just got smart about it. They were paying ridiculous prices from my point of view. I yes. Mean, some, yes, were museum piece, but the average blue and white something or other wasn't worth near what they were paying. Well, it's an interesting problem because we went through it with Russian bidders a few years yes, ago. Yes, that's absolutely 100% right. I have a friend that uh, has really good insight a lot of times. And he quoted this to me that you may find interesting. And that is the top 20% or 20% of a Asian or Chinese auction is doing extremely well, very, very good. And everything else is selling for just about what it always has. What do you think about that? Well, I don't think it's quite down that far, but it's getting there. Mm -hmm. um, for a while there, everything was selling way over. But it's kind of hard to figure these things out because, well, we've collected 
we we have a country store in the basement. We don't. By the way, we don't sell anything. We've never been dealers. Ralph was in the food business, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it was inevitable, right? And every time he <laughs> called on a customer and they heard it, they'd say, "Oh, we've got a lot of old labels around here. You want them? You know, it was a great deal for a while." But those things were were throwaways. Literally, that was trash. Mm-hmm. And um, it's gotten to be so that some of the prices they're paying for that is just astounding to me. They're paying thousands and thousands of dollars for a tin sign that was made in multiples, and you can buy a good oil painting for that. Mm-hmm. So the interest level on certain things is causing the prices, and when the people who, the 20 people who are bidding the highest of the prices stop collecting for one reason or another, everything's going to drop. This always seems to go in cycles. That's what happened to the yes. bottle market. Mm-hmm. People still collect, but and we love to do comparisons. Anytime we find something that was sold at the original Gardner sale, because he was the greatest bottle collector around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have that price. We have all the old catalogs, so we go back and look them up, and we show you that price, and then we show you what happened recently. And I know I, we reported in one in the last few weeks where the the bottle went from, I don't know, like 30-some thousand down to 20-some thousand now. But nonetheless, they've dropped. Well, I know a historical flask not that long ago went very high and bitters bottles are breaking records so it's again it's the very top crust it seems yeah. that is holding on the bottle people by the way are very active well i'm i'm a member of all the bottle clubs so i this one i know we've always collected them and uh you go to one of the meets or one of the conventions or any of the shows and it's it's mob i mean they have big crowds Mm. But they aren't exactly what you would expect. It's kind of this one little group that moves from place to place. And they're, like everybody else, looking for younger collectors. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about younger collectors. Uh, what do you see as a solution to getting more people involved? Do you have, have you ever given that any thought? Well, I hear enough about it. Um, I, I think in some ways we get what we deserve in this industry, the younger collect the younger dealers that I see at the shows are are salespeople. They merchandise. They do a good layout. They show you how to use things well. They have a show which has lectures or um, some kind of information uh, that shows you how you can well why you should own it or how you can do it. But each of these little groups seems to be able to find somebody. Like the political button creep people must be going crazy right now. And there's a lot of younger people who are looking at political buttons. But they start with what they remember from their parents. They don't Mm -hmm. go way back. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a solution to that. Yes, there is a a disconnect. Um, I spoke with uh, Harry Rinker about this a while back. His theory on that was if there's not an emotional connection, i.e. having tea with your grandmother with a Limoges coffee set, when there's no connection, when it's placed a value on instead and tucked away and no one can use it, that kind of breaks the emotional contact that you would have in trying to look for that item because of the emotional side of it. Harry and I both agree that there's about a 25-year cycle. You start out like we did when you're newly married and you buy something and you get intrigued. We started collecting the store stuff early on. And then you get a little richer, and we hope you're a little better off, and you buy things that cost a little more, and then you know more about it, and you know what to buy. And pretty soon you're the guy at the top of the heap. And then you have to move to a smaller house, or somebody dies, or something such thing happens, and you're gone, and there's no top guy anymore. So the prices drop down to the, the beginners again. 
And that's really what happens. It takes about 25 years. Wow. Uh, a lot of times I think, in general, the market has dropped for the most part. But Oh, it has. Yeah. But there... It has. I think the, the economy is showing. I mean, people don't have the extra money they used to have. This is another situation I'm going to throw at you and see what you have to say about it. What do you think the effect of the baby boomers getting out of the collecting market is going to change? Well, I think... As I said, I think that we're going to have shows that are not just antique shows, but they have uh, crafts there and modern jewelry makers and good ones, though, not the ones who string beads, the ones who are actually making something. And we have a number of shows in this area where we have modern potters are working. Actually, we have some that are specifically things that are made after 1950. And I think that's what's going to happen. The specialized things are going to be be more out there. And uh, we just have to adjust. And, of course, you have to know how to use social media and you have to do all those other things to stay in business. That's right. That's right. Now I want to talk to you about what has changed in what you do since the Internet has come alive. Everything. (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Yeah. Ralph died in 2008 and my daughter became my partner. Thank heavens, because she really knows the Internet. And so we have... Well, we have, we have had a website for a long time. Uh, we were smart enough to do that. But we have a subscription newsletter that we've had for 30 years, and um, we now have online as well as the printed ones, and we're, we're getting more a lot more online than we ever did. And we have, um, we have some of our books up, as I said. The uh, Mark book is up. That We charge for that. Um, there, we give a lot of free information away because we want you to come to our website because it's the it, it's a weird economy you know you make your money on the ads you don't make your money on your product anymore mm. but you have to know how to do it and I personally can't buy anything online uh, I have to see it and hold it and look at it now that I've said that I have bought one or two things but they're things I know really well but mm-hmm. I know people who just love going out there and say I think I want to buy a red chair today and they look for one until they find one uh you never could do that before and the Mm -hmm. dealers have to live with that and Mm -hmm. they have to show glass candlesticks upside down or whatever it takes to get people to stop in the booth and figure out gee i like that it looks good people used to enjoy the hunt in driving around to antique shops yard sales things like that and now they enjoy the hunt by sitting in their living room and getting on their laptop and looking that way it's pretty i know and and it's it's embarrassing because you say gee i want to collect sock stretchers and you go out there and up comes something which shows you that there are 22 of them being sold at auctions next month you know that's no fun (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about you if you even do this but i still like to go to estate sales and and uh i like to go to small auctions and you know when it's a, a large auction everything's online it's pretty pretty easy to see everything there but it's there's still the hunt as far in my case to just oh i go to everything oh you do i love it yeah i figure this is my inexpensive entertainment you know i go into shops i go into i go to yard sales if i see them uh, i don't go to house sales anymore because i find that, that the house sale people around here have already invited the dealers in the day before ah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I won't go to anything like that. But some of the yard sales, you find things, and particularly for the for our country store, because people think old boxes aren't worth anything. I have to say that there was a difference in San Francisco, and I hope 
I do have quite a few listeners in California, and I hope no one's offended by me saying this, but I have gone to many estate sales in California where the dealers were already there for two or three days and overlooked a lot of real gems. So I'm giving this message to people out in California. Don't stop going to yard sales or estate sales because you think the dealers have already been there because you never know what you're going to find. Oh, you're absolutely right. And one of the things, by the way, we have a, a free e-zine, I guess they call them. It's Covell's Comments. You sign up on our website. As long as you register, I will send you this note every week. And I like to write about things nobody else is writing about, like some lady just found a Renoir painting in a, at a flea market. Oh, yes, I, I guess, saw that. It's still life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the kind of story I love, you know. And it's no question that sometimes it does happen. And I bought... I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, I went to a sale. I went to the antique show, and I bought a morning picture, M-O-U-R. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody wants those, but we collected them for years. And this one was fabulous, and it was very inexpensive. And she said, nobody's even looked at them at this sale. I wow. said, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Nobody looks at them anywhere. Just for the listener that doesn't know what that is, in the uh, 19th century, generally, uh, and during that era, the, a morning picture would be if someone passed away, and they would. a lot of times it's needlework, uh, sometimes it's not, and oftentimes there's a memorial of the person uh, centered in the, the picture. Yeah, this, is, this has a memorial, and it's made of hair. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. They, they, and needlework, and some kind of drippy grain. I can't even figure out what it is, and paint. Ah, and it, it's wow. very elaborate and very small. Mm-hmm. And I think it's German. That's what the dealer and I decided. It's not American. Wow, interesting. Now, since we're on this subject, why don't you talk about what you would consider your best find? Oh, that's easy. And it was very long ago. Uh-huh. We went to a house sale. Uh, it happened that we knew the woman who was running the house sale, and she had called us up and said, I've got this house. They've got all this glass and stuff in the cupboards, and it looks good to me. Would you come over and give us some advice? So we went over, and we told her, Yes, you're right. It's 18th century, and it's a long story. At any rate, we went to the sale. Now, we had not seen it ahead of time, and we bought for $10 a sugar ca- a silver sugar caster. We knew it was solid silver. We knew it was American. We, we had just finished a book on silver, but we didn't know until we got home that it was made by Paul Revere Senior. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was all marked. It's now in a museum. That is just amazing. Yeah, and I think we paid something like 10 or $15 for it. You don't no. hit many of those. No. But the other thing that we did, which was an amazing one, is we actually wrote the first article about George Orr Pottery. Do you know George Orr? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, he was a real nutcase. But yeah, that's what I understand. Pottery. Yeah. And we did an art pottery book, and when we were at the Smithsonian doing the research, uh, the person who was taking me around said, you've got to see one of these things that we've got here. This is a crazy man who gave us this. And they had seven pieces of George Orr pottery that had been given by George to the Smithsonian and because he was the greatest potter in the world. He said they had to have it. And uh, so we thought, this guy's great. And we, looked, we did a lot of research, and we wrote an article for a magazine called Western Collector, which didn't, was phenomenal but didn't last very long. In fact, that was the last issue of the magazine when our article came out. That's embarrassing. But the man who discovered that George Orr had put all of his pottery in an attic in the early 1900s and said, I'm not going to do this anymore, he had gone down and had 
was buying cars, old cars from their sons, from his sons, and uh, he bought 4,000 pieces of ore that was in an attic. Oh. And he called us and said, I got this stuff. We saw your article. You're the only one that said anything about him. I'd like to show it to you. And he stopped here on the way to a show, and he had the pieces marked $5, $10. I think the most expensive was 25 And he brought in 40 pieces, and my oh. husband fell in love with them and bought all of them. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow, that was so, good timing. Yeah, now, those pieces today, I have one that must be worth at least 10000 I mean, it's just phenomenal. But as I said, you don't get that lucky very often. That's right. We know a dealer who bought at some point or other, because ore was floating around at the shows for about three or four years before anybody started paying anything for it. And this dealer bought all the, the uh, puzzle mugs. He made a lot of, of – he did things for, for fairs. You know, he sold souvenirs at fairs as well as doing the big fancy stuff. And these were mugs where you, you had to figure out how to get the food, the, the liquid out because they had holes in the side, you know. They were mystery mugs or puzzle mugs, I guess you call them. Mm -hmm. He carried those around for two years. He couldn't sell them for 25 bucks a piece. Wow. And Jeez. he finally just sold that whole collection to somebody else, you know. And I don't know, somebody somewhere made money on these, but <laughs> yeah. it took a long time. Yeah, yeah. I, I own one of those because I thought it was interesting. <laughs> I was interviewed by a, a newspaper reporter a few years ago uh, sitting in a cafe, and she said to me after we talked, she said, you you don't deal in real value, do you? You deal in, in perceived values. That is pretty apparent in the things that we do, and especially to someone like you. Well, but what isn't perceived value? The art market, if you owned a, a, a French realist painting 10, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, you were getting a fortune. Today, right. nobody's buying them. They're worth about a fourth what they used to be. And these are major artists. That's right. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it's hard to say. Everything's perceived value. Well, who pays $80,000 for a car when they can buy one for $30,000? I know it's a better car, but... You have to think it's a better car, too. Yeah. I guess you're absolutely right about that. You know, we, we pay a lot for diamonds because we think diamonds are valuable, you know. And, and I think uh, we're getting a little philosophical in this. <laughs> and that's, that's my fault. But um, I just think it's kind of a fascinating thing when you, you have to create records year after year of what is going on. Uh, I am sure you look back and say, wow, you can really see the trends. Yeah, you really can, uh, particularly like doorstops. Nobody looked at the doorstop when I first started collecting, and mm -hmm. then they went way through the ceiling, and now they're coming back down again a little. And why should a doorstop be worth anything? <laughs> I mean, really, when you yeah. go down to one of the major, one of the best sellers today, and, and I find this amazing, is anything made of iron. Hmm. Griswold pans, doorstops, uh, door knockers, banks. hardware, mechanical banks, toys. Hmm. They're all selling for high prices, and I have no idea why. Wow, that's interesting. We're just about out of time here, and I want to touch briefly on fakes. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> in your opinion, how much do you think that affects collecting in the market? Well, if you really keep up with the market, uh, then you know there's fakes everywhere. And mm -hmm. we actually do a booklet every year on fakes. And the booklet is based on things we wrote about 20 years ago, and the fakes are still out there. Um, 
don't be upset because museums have been fooled. I mean, the Metropolitan, uh, Victoria and Albert, they've all had fakes. Uh, the Ford Museum, they've all had fakes. Mm-hmm. And a good faker can fool anybody. They just arrested some guy who was selling paintings in about 15 different painter styles and that Sotheby's and Christie's were selling them as these newly found masterpieces. So, Was this the person that would not sign his paintings? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But... Uh, most times, if you're buying, if you're specializing in bottles or in an iron or whatever, you get to know what it should look like, and you get this sixth sense which says mm-hmm. to you, "Uh-oh, something's not right." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know of, of a painting, for instance, that was in the Cleveland Museum that everybody walked by every day. And one day, one of the restorers walked by and said to the curator. I don't know why, but there's something wrong with that picture, and it had great provenance. He says there's just something about it that annoys me every time I go by. And it turned out he was right. It was a much, it was a modern copy. And wow. what was wrong was they had used a white paint that was a different color than it should be. Now who knows the color of white, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but if you know your field well enough, mm-hmm. you you get a feeling for it. And I guess you have to figure it's part of your education to buy a fake now and then. That's right. Yeah. I also think that. My first, in my situation, my first initial feeling instantly is one I always have to go back to because that's right. There's been many times where right off the bat I go, nope, that's not right. Well, that's right. You you have to trust your instincts if you've been a collector because back in the back of your head somewhere, mm-hmm. just like you know a great piece if you see it sitting there right. in a pile of junk, you just know somehow, and you can't explain to somebody that the texture is wrong. That's right. You know? Uh huh. I know people oftentimes when I'm at an appraisal clinic and someone brings a reproduction or a good reproduction or a fake and they ask me why, why do I think it is a fake? And I say, I can't really tell you. I just, I just know it is. I've said yeah. that before. You know? Well, I know that when, when the ore pottery first came out, I went through a show and all of a sudden there I am staring at a blood red ore pottery base. Mm-hmm. And I went to the dealer who was selling Royal Dalton primarily, and I said, you know, I know that this is an unfamiliar thing to most of us, but I'm telling you that can't be right. That had to be reglazed. He never did a decent glaze in his life. He always had <laughs> infections in it. Uh-huh. And it disappeared. I mean, she took it off the market, and I was right that he, they, since then, because he did pink, but he never did red. Wow. Wow. So you just know. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, I... I'm going to ask you if you would be up for coming on the show again. Sure, I'd be glad to, but I want to give my plugs. Oh, absolutely, yes. Here you go. The floor is yours. got to go to the bookstore, go online, go wherever. You can buy it from our site for Covell's Price Guide 2013. It just came out, 40,000 prices, all put in there in the last year, by the way. And 2,500 color pictures, which is another thing that we do now that we never could do before because of all the digital stuff. Mm. And uh, it's really useful. And one of the things, our price list online, which is free, has all the prices dated, which means if you're trying to figure out taxes or estate, estate taxes or whatever you get into on that sort of thing, they're dated so you have a base price you can use because this is this is valid as far as the government's concerned. So... Mm. Uh, it's wow. worth looking. As I say, there's 800,000 or more prices online that are free. Our website is covels.com, K-O-V-E-L-S, although I think if you forget the S, why? 
you'll get there too sooner or later. If you stick Covell's in, you get all sorts of stuff. We're all over the place. And you'll see what, look around and see what's there and sign up for the easing because I love stupid stories. And if you know any, let me, let me know about them. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed having you on as a guest. Well, yeah. thank you. It's been fun. All right. Thanks so much. And this yep. is Martin Willis with Terry Covell. And we're signing off. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.